This morning we are uh, going to jump back into Romans. We six sermons in here, and we're on Romans chapter three and verse uh, twenty-one is where we're going to start this morning. In a sermon, I'm calling uh, "Turning Point." Um, in life, walking down the aisle, hearing your baby cry for the first time, starting a new job or new school. Lying in a hospital bed, sitting in a funeral home. All times in life where we can sit and we can kind of substantively feel like this is a turning point. Things are, things are going to be different from this point on. Paul is writing here uh, to the Romans, and we've spent the first six sermons, the first two and a half chapters, if you will, Looking at the sinfulness of man, Paul has acted like the, uh, the attorney that he is, if you will, and he has made a case for why mankind is broken, why every single person that ever breathed the breath needs God to be reconciled, uh, needs Jesus Christ to be reconciled with God. And he's made this case. We've spent a long time on it. Uh, in this letter, we come to a turning point here where he begins to shift from talking about the sinfulness of man and why we're all broken and why we need God and we need grace and we need mercy. Uh, and he goes uh, here, spends, uh, he, he's starting what will end up being about five chapters as he expounds and talks about the grace of God. So here we're at a turning point in the letter to Romans, okay, from the sinfulness of man to the grace of God. This is an exciting time. Uh, we've spent a long time talking about uh, how broken and how in despair we are, uh, and now we're going to spend some time talking about the hope that is in Jesus Christ. We got to that a little bit last week um, as, we, as we saw that at the, at the end of verse 20, it says, Therefore no one will be declared righteousness in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Paul has let us know, why do we have the law? Why are all these rules important of what we're supposed to do and what's right and what's wrong? Uh, and he's telling us, we see that, we have that, so we know we can't do it perfectly. We need something else because we can't do it. We can't please God on our own. And so he moves right into verse 21, and let's just read the verses we're going to be in this morning, and then I want to spend some, spend some time there. Uh, so let's read them. If you have your Bibles, Romans 3.20, I just read that, so let's, let's move on from there. Romans 3.21, this is where it starts. And if you highlight, if you underline, if you have an app, do something. Highlight these first two words, um, and uh, I, I would do the first one. There was a preacher we heard one time. Uh, he was preaching on a passage of scripture, and he got to a point like this, and he said, oh, and then there's that but. And oh, how I love that but. I'm not going to say that this morning. But this but is really important. This is really important. Because he's just told us in verse 20, no one will be declared righteous through the law. And that's speaking to you, but it's speaking to the Jews at the time in a mind-blowing way. They thought the only way to be righteous was to live perfectly. 
And so he said, no one will do it. The law is not what you should be worshiping. It says, through the law you see your sinful state. But then he goes to verse 21 and he says, but now, but now, in this present time, in this moment, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This is a huge statement. The righteousness of God, you could, you could sub that out with Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. Jesus has been present and he fulfilled the law. He is on display the righteousness of God, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And he ties it back to everything they believe. Everything you've read, all the Old Testament prophets, the Torah, the law, all this pointed forward to a Messiah, and that Messiah came in the form of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. The righteousness is given through what? Sola fide, if you remember last two weeks ago, faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and and Gentile for all this is a verse y'all heard this verse your whole life right Romans 3 23 when somebody walks you through the Romans roadmap for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God I hope after the last six sermons that verse just is so much deeper than you realized it is that he was really speaking to Jews who thought they were perfect who also thought Gentiles had no hope except they were more like them and he is speaking into them saying none of you None of you have reached the full glory of God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, depending on what version you're reading, that could say propitiation in the King James Version. Some uh, expediation is is a term that's used. We're going to talk about that in a minute through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his, un, his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. We're going to wrap this up in these last two verses. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Let me tell you, in these 10, 11 verses is the heart of the gospel. There is so much, so much theological depth here. They teach entire semesters in seminary about some of these individual topics here, justification, redemption, atonement. I mean, deep words here. We all grew up here, and you got to get saved. So-and-so got saved. This is where we understand how we're saved, why we're saved, what it means when we get saved. This is the greatest 
10 to 11 verses in the Bible that describes and explains what happens. This is Paul talking about the heart of the gospel. I shared that this was a turning point, right? It's a turning point in the letter. He's changing topics. It is a turning point in the history of mankind. He says, but now, he says, oh, remember before, all the generations before you that tried hard and hard and tried to obey the law, and they, they never could do it, and they were having to sacrifice, and they were going through all these processes, and they were, they were sacrificing livestock to try to appease God. But it, and it says, but now, things are totally different. This is, this is a different time, a different age, a different era has come upon us because the righteousness of God has been made known. He has come in the flesh. A turning point in the letter, a turning point in history that relates and represents an opportunity for you and for me, for the readers, the original readers of this letter, to have a turning point in our own life. This is what this means. I want to look at these three, uh, these three things. He really uses three metaphors here. And gosh, I could get so deep into this, I don't want to do that. If, if you want to spend time outside of this, uh, digging into justification, redemption, all these things I'm going to talk about, we can do it. I just want you to understand there's three things that he tells us here. When we give Jesus Christ our life, there are three things that happen uh, when we get saved. And he talks about those here. The first one that he, he uses as a metaphor, and I asked Beth because she used to be an English teacher. I was like, metaphor, is that a simile? You know, use a like or, use like or as? That's, a, that's not that, right? It's a metaphor. It's comparing but not using like or as. These are metaphors. First thing he uses is, uh, is the metaphor of a courtroom. And when he uses the word, we have been justified. And so we have said that we are sinful, we are guilty, right? Does anybody, I don't think anybody would disagree after we've gone through the first two and a half chapters that Paul is making the case that mankind at some point is going to have to account for the life that they live and they cannot be found not guilty. They will be guilty of sin and rebelling against God. At some point, we've broken one of God's commandments. Every person that lives. But he says something happens here when we get saved. That we become justified by faith. This is, if you were imagining you were going to go on trial and you knew that, every, that you were guilty of everything you had been accused of. And you knew that life was over, that you had no hope. And this is not just, I'm, I'm not talking about the courtroom down the block that you might end up in the county jail for a little while. I'm talking about the eternal, the judgment that determines your eternity. That you will stand before and give an account with someone who we said what news knows all the facts. He doesn't need to bring in witnesses. He knows all. Like you can't hide. You can't. You, you don't have any plausible defenses that you can come up with. You are guilty. But something happens when we believe. When we put our faith 
in Jesus Christ, we become justified. Justified means when we stand in that courtroom. The judge is going to come back. And he's going to say, not guilty. I mean, that's something we're shouting about. He's going to come, and God is going to say, not guilty. You might be carrying guilt in your life right now. Mistakes you've made. Rebellion you've had. Times you've doubted God. Times you've rebelled against God. Times you've blatantly been living a sinful lifestyle and doing whatever, serving completely your own whims and desires and being your own God and ignoring Him. You see, you, you, you will run out of energy trying to solve that and fix that. And it is so simple that he says this comes to anyone who believes on Jesus Christ. It's all you have to do to get rid of all that guilt. He can take all the dirtiness, all the filth that is our life and immediately wipe it clean and you become not guilty by God's standard. Because Jesus took our place, right? This is what this is about. Jesus came and lived perfectly. He was righteousness. And so he embodies and we put our faith in him. We become in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus was perfect. The second thing, the second metaphor he uses here is slavery. And we find the verse here. Um... Verse 24, let me go back to it. So we have verse 23, it says, For all of sin falls short of the glory of God, and all are justified. So we got justification. All are justified freely through our faith, by His grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. This redemption, this word, uh, was a metaphor as it related to slavery. You see, their culture... Uh, and many cultures that still exist today. Uh, I, I got you all remember me talking about my friend from India, Vijay. Uh, I remember talking to him about growing up and and growing up in India. Um, they they it, it, it used to be known as the caste system, and it's maybe not that uh, uh, that uh, exasperated today, but it's very similar. Like if if you are born the into a family of professionals then that's what you will be and do. If you are born into poverty, that is who you are and what you will do. This idea that we have in America of what we, what we might call economic mobility, that you can start with nothing and still become something and make your own way, does not exist. And see, slavery was very much that way in this time. That if you were born into slavery, that if you were born into a certain uh, uh, culture or level of society, that's where you were going to stay. And if you were a slave, the only way to be, uh, be taken out of slavery was to be redeemed or someone to pay a price to pay for you. And so Paul uses this metaphor to say, uh, 
you have been redeemed. He says, when we become saved, we are no longer a slave to sin and the curse that is sin, the curse that comes along with it. What's that curse? The wages of sin are death, eternal death. God is a righteous God. He's a just God, and he has wrath for sin. He has to do something with it. Even your sin and my sin, if you're a believer. The wages of death, the death had to be, the price had to be paid. Who paid that price? Who died? Jesus Christ. So that when we put our faith in him, we can live eternally. The price of our sin has already been paid. He paid that price, and we are no longer a slave to sin and that curse, and knowing there's no way we can break it, we are now a slave to righteousness, as Paul writes. The, second, the third one that he talks about uh, here in verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Many of you may have heard the word. He's a propitiation. Y'all have heard that before. Uh, that's, a, that's a big word. You all use that all the time. You know, you're going through McDonald's and, you know, just use that propitiation word, throw it in there when you're ordering. We don't use that word in our language, right? I mean, that is, uh, that, that, this, this is, this is a, a word that, you know, you got to go back and study the, the Hebrew or the Greek original and get context and understand what are they talking about here. Uh, the the other place this word, the only other place this word is used in the New Testament is translated mercy seat, and they're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the the word propitiation. Here, here's what I want to say. We when we are justified, our relationship with God changes, and we are now seen as holy, and we can be one with Him. Our relationship is restored. When when Christ redeemed us by paying that price, we are no longer in slavery. To sin, our relationship there changes. What he's saying when we are the propitiation or Christ is the propitiation or the sacrifice of atonement. You see, God's wrath, he is just. And Paul goes on to say this. you got to hold on. I know this is deep stuff, and we're going to move out of the depth in just a minute and apply it. Um, but but it, he says down here when he went into all this through 27 uh, uh, or verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That means the wrath for his sin has to be satisfied. The wrath for the sin you committed and the I committed, it still has to be satisfied. And it was satisfied in the death of Christ. That, that not only were we redeemed in that process, but God's anger toward all mankind for rebelling against him was poured out on his own son. These are three big things that happened. And he lays it out pretty simply and just says, when we believe in Christ. Faith. I didn't count the times. It's in here a number of times. When we have faith in Jesus Christ. While he did all this, he makes it clear that we have a choice to make. 
that we have uh, a free will. There's um, C.S. Lewis said this about turning points. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. As Paul is speaking here, he's speaking from one, right? This is this kind of deep theological talk, but he is not just someone who has studied this. If you go back to Acts chapter 9, Paul used to be Saul. Saul used to be a person who hated Christians. Who In, in chapter 9 we find uh, just recently Paul had stood uh, by the way when the first martyr, the deacon of the early church, Stephen, when he was martyred and stoned to death, Paul stood there. They laid their garments at Saul's feet. This same Paul that's writing these words, uh, who used to be, his name used to be Saul, he was the one who went to the leaders, uh, the high priest, and they asked for letters to the synagogues. He said, I, I'm, he was after anyone who belonged to the way. Anyone who, any Jew had turned their back on tradition and, and accepted this, this, this false prophet, Jesus Christ, as a Messiah, was going to pay. That was Saul's mission in life. And he was on his way to Damascus to arrest more that would lead to the death of more Christians. On his way, you all know the story, a light shined out of the sky, it struck him down, uh, and, and Jesus himself spoke to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is Saul who, who passionately loved the Hebrew God and the God of Abraham and thought he was fighting for him to protect his God against this Jesus. Now speaking to him, and all this is coming clear, this might be a turning point for Saul's life. Jesus immediately tells him, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. He goes into the city, he's blind. When he comes up from this experience, they lead him to the city. Uh, and then God reveals himself to Ananias and says, I need you to go pray for Saul. I need you to go find him. And Ananias is like, wait, <laughs> I remember, I've heard this name. He's murdering Christians. He hates Christians. But Ananias goes. I love, I love uh, Ananias. He pushes back a little bit. And then uh, the Lord says to him, go. <laughs> like, it's just that simple. Like, and stop debating with me and go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias got there, calls him Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Saul, now Paul, after God changed his name, has experienced 
a turning point in his life. As I really prepare to wrap up in just a moment, I wanna I wanna just really just just lay this out as simple as I can. How easy it is in life to get distracted from the most important thing. That just because you've been saved and you've had that first most critical turning point in your life doesn't mean there will never be another one. And that God just laid it on my heart as I was reading this passage. I started to name this message the heart of the gospel. I started to name it not guilty. That's a powerful mindset to think I deserve it, but I'm not getting it because I got grace because of my faith, not guilty. But he, he told me somebody, including maybe myself, needed a turning point. That you're headed one direction, and you see Saul was headed to Damascus, and he ended up still going to Damascus, but he was not the same person. I'm not just talking about a turning point and turning your car around. You know, I've done that, right? You get halfway to town, and you realize you forgot your wallet or wherever you're going, and I've, I've locked it up, and I've gone back. And I tell you what I think happens sometimes in life is we start going so fast into life and busyness and money and job and career. And there's sometimes we got to put the brakes on and realize I forgot something at home. And how do you know if you've done that? Are you, it, when we start living full of anxiety, when we start living full of fear, when we start thinking, man, the world is falling apart. When we think that when we think an election determines and, and, and it can it can change and, and be outside the will of God, but like wow, that happened. That it, it it may be stolen from one candidate or the other, but they cannot steal from God's will. He is sovereign. Kings rise and fall under his hand. And there's sometimes you just got to put the brakes on and say, whoa, just a minute. Have I lost sight of who's in control? Have, have, have I myself strayed? Because you might be like the disciples. You remember the story, Mark chapter 6, they're, they're, they're out in the boat, and Jesus has sent them across, and, and it says a great wind or storm came upon them, and they started rowing harder and harder and harder against the wind. You might be starting to think you can save yourself, that you can work harder, that you can be better, that you can make more money. That, that you can go to church more, that you can, you can get into this mindset that you can row harder. And you see, they looked up and Jesus was standing on the water. <laughs> the very thing they were fighting against, rowing and pushing against. And, and they didn't even recognize him at first. They thought he was a, just a ghost. And maybe in your life and in my life, we're rowing so hard against the wind that we're not even looking up to see Jesus staring at us. 
Let me just share his words with you to them. It might apply to you. It applies to me. Take courage. <laughs> it's me. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. And, 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 or we might be uh, like the disciples who really did put their hope into politics. You say, really? I've never even seen the word politics in, in the New Testament or the Gospels. Let me tell you about, about Peter. This man who loved Jesus so much, so much that when he looked out and saw Jesus down the water, he said, I want to come to you. And he walked for a minute. Remember, he, he, he stood on the water for a minute. This St. Peter and the disciples, they were so wrapped up in Jesus. And even when he died, even though Jesus had told him so much what the real kingdom was, they were distraught because they thought he was going to be a political leader. They thought he was going to be in Rome. He was going to kick Rome out of Jerusalem and that they were going to build up this worldly kingdom, a new government, and, and Israel was going to be back and sovereign. And they thought that's what it was going to be. But this, this Peter, he, he's the, the, the Peter that when Jesus was crucified, the disciples scattered. This is the Peter that in that moment, he was so caught up in politics that he couldn't even tell a little girl by the campfire that he knew Jesus. That he denied him. That he was embarrassed that his, his leader had been defeated. That he didn't do what he thought he was going to do. Or maybe we're like the disciples that when Jesus had gathered to teach and there were thousands... That were there with them and they were hungry. And he looked at one of his disciples and said, what are we going to do? Let me tell you, Jesus only asks rhetorical questions. He does not need information from you and me. He did not need information from that disciple. I can't remember which one it was now. Uh, uh, but he did not need This is Anytime you feel God asking questions in your heart, stirring your spirit, it's to bring you back to focus. And that's what that question was. How are we going to feed them? He asked his disciples. So like, I, if we had a year's worth of wages and, you know, and, and Texas Roadhouse was right here, I don't know how we'd feed them. I mean, just so much doubt. And just looking to the creator of mankind saying, I don't know, I can't do it. Can't be done. Maybe we're like the rich young ruler who asked Jesus, how do I get into heaven? Or maybe things are too good for us. Maybe we've got too much comfort. Maybe it's too easy. All the bills are paid, money in the bank account. We're not worried. Things are too just like smooth sailing. That when Jesus says, you know, don't get legalistic in this comment as he, as he teaches this rich young ruler. He says, I've obeyed all those. What else? And Jesus said, well, sell all you have and come and follow me. And Jesus was trying to get him to see his brokenness by the law that he could not be perfect. But he didn't have to be perfect. He just needed to put his faith in Jesus. I want you to see just some choices that these groups made and how it changed things. One, the first disciples eventually they invited when they were out on that 
sea and the waves were crashing and they were rowing as hard as they could. Eventually, they invited Jesus into their boat. They invited Jesus into the boat. Peter, even after denying Christ three times, and then even when, when, when after the resurrection, even then Peter's like, I'm going fishing. I'm out on this. I've just totally disconnected, and he goes fishing. Even Peter, when he makes this choice, when he's out there and they've not caught anything all night, I think this is at the end of the Gospel of John, and Jesus shows up, and he's getting ready to ascend for the last time, uh, and, and, and he, 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 he shows up on the, the banks of the, the sea, standing on the beach, and he yells out to Peter. He doesn't know, Peter doesn't know, who, they don't know who this person is on the beach, and, Peter, and Jesus says, cast your net on this side, right? And they've not caught anything, and Peter's like, who are you? How do you know? All right, whatever, and just frustrated and does it, and it says they caught so many they didn't know what to do with them. And when they did that, Peter immediately knew this is, that's Jesus. And you remember what he did? He pulled off his cloak. Let me tell you, this, this choice to be made for your turning point, Peter throws off his cloak, and he knows if there's one thing he has to do, if he has to swim, if he has to, to run, if he has to, to get another boat, whatever he has to do, he has to get to Jesus. And of all the disciples that were all like following Jesus and probably at times feeling a little arrogant that they're part of his clan, right? They're running with Jesus. When they ask him, how are we going to feed all these people? And they say, oh, we, there's no way. We don't know. Can't be done. There was one little lad. There was one little boy that maybe understood more about who Jesus was than all the preachers and all the, the leaders they had a little lunchable, if you will. <laughs> Maybe leftover. You know, be like Rozzy. They've been going to school these last few weeks. And, uh, and they give out lunches for the days they're not going to be there. And uh, apparently she's become known to all the, uh, the lunchroom crew as the one that takes extras. And uh, they announced that. She, this is the one that takes extras. And she came home with four the other day. Four lunches. But had a little something left over. But knew a little something left over. <laughs> Given to Christ. Put in his hands. Is worth infinitely more than you and me sitting back and doubting that God's in control. This thing we're talking about this morning, this turning point, the thing that changes everything that can take us from one direction to another is called repentance. It means acknowledging our brokenness. If you go to the Old Testament, it means to make a complete U-turn. In the New Testament, the Greek word means to change our mind about who God is, to just for a minute, let's put the brakes on and remember who he is. It's not just as feeling sorry. It's not just apologizing. 
to God or changing one's mind, but as a turning around a complete alteration of the basic motivation and direction of one's life. Here's the truth. Every Christian, this is why church on Sunday morning is so important. Time together. Six days, we can get really distracted. (laughs) And I don't know about you, uh, but me, this Sunday morning, studying for this, I realized in the last six days, I got really distracted. That every morning it's more about hearing, or less about just hearing and processing and going through the process, and more about choosing. What am I going to do with it? Is it just going to be something that comes into my head and I know and I'm, I'm reading the verses Jared's talking about and, you know, I know that verse now. Or is it literally going to be something I take into my heart and into my life and I surrender and I say nothing else in this world is good enough. I'm going to give it all to him. Second Peter The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. That's why John the Baptist looked for the results of repentance in those who came to him. He demanded that hypocritical people bear fruits worthy of repentance. If you've never given your heart to Christ, it's the one thing it takes. You can get rid of the guilt. You can be redeemed. The the, the worry of the wrath that you're going to encounter that is justified can be taken away simply by faith in Jesus Christ. On the day of Pentecost, it says people's heart, they were cut to the heart. There was a real emotional depth of what this truth meant to them. And then they asked, they said, what should we do? I feel this way. What should we do? And Peter responded simply, repent. And let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent. Turn your heart away from sin. Turn it toward Jesus. Put your trust, your confidence in him, believe in him. So this morning as I wrap this up, I'm going to invite every Christian that's listening, every believer. Have you gotten distracted? We're getting ready to listen to a song, the name of which is nothing else. Has there become a something else that's become more important than your faith in Christ? The last of this chapter, verse 31, that we read says, We uphold the law. Sin is uh, the law, the rules are not just to show us we are sinful, there is much value in a life lived in obedience to God's commandments. We're going to find out another word as we go on called sanctification that begins after you get saved. 
the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart and begins to change you, making you closer and closer and more like Jesus. As time goes on, you will bear fruit. Are you bearing fruit? You say, well, I don't know if I've repented. I don't know if I'm really saved. I mean, I go to church all the time, uh, and, 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 I, and I'm going through the motions, but maybe I didn't get saved. You will know by the condition of your heart. By the condition of your heart. It's not, I mean, you can force yourself to do good things, but you can't change your heart to overwhelmingly want to do good things most of the time. So examine your heart. I want to invite you this morning, every person that's listening. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 60 years or two years. That's the feeling, right? Where's my wallet? It's worth slamming the brakes on. To take it serious and get it right. The song, powerful words. Words of repentance right in the middle of it says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the times I've just gone through the motions. If there's one thing we need today in this moment, in our community, in our country, is individuals to take our hearts back to Jesus. place you can pray at home on a couch I don't care where you are we got an altar here if you're here and you want to pray go to Jesus this morning this right here I think this is it I'm sorry I'm sorry that I've just gone through the motions I'm sorry Maybe I'm the only one that at times have only gone through the motions. I'm not the only one that does that, I know. I mean, this song speaks to me. Let's just stand and worship him as he goes through the rest of this song. We'll just listen and we'll sing along with it. He's here. He is in this place. He is in uncertainty.
He owes us nothing. Free gift of grace. As simple as faith and believing in Him. God, I just want you this morning. I don't need anybody else's affirmation. I don't need anybody else's confidence. I don't need a title. I don't need money. I I just want you. God, we thank you for turning points that you orchestrate. God, thank you that there was a point in history where all things changed and you revealed righteousness and hope to us. God, I'm thankful through our our pursuit of you and choices we make to give it all to you. At a turning point in our life, a, a permanent one, when we give our life to you and we get saved, but in our day, in our week, there can be little turning points where we've got to stop and avoid the distractions and bring ourselves back to you. God, I think more than one this morning locked up the brakes. I did. God, bring us back. And we know when we come 
I come running when we just start to turn around. You're like the father of the prodigal son. You, you won't wait to us to, for us to get there. You are running after us to greet us and welcome us in. Thank you for that grace and that mercy. God, we can leave this moment and this time with peace and confidence and joy. Peace that passes all understanding. If there's one group of people should feel peace in this chaos, it should be Christians. People should see the peace that passes all understanding because our God is always in control and we trust you. This morning, we trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you uh, if you've watched all throughout my history, please, you can find our phone number. Faithfulness has walked beside me. You comment on the Facebook feed or YouTube. We don't care. We want to talk with you and help bring you closer to Jesus. I pray everyone has a great week. We'll have Bible study Wednesday night. Uh, back here next Sunday morning as we continue to dig deeper into this turning point in the chapter of the book of Romans something we can, I mean, we'll do our best the next few weeks to understand the grace of God. It's bigger than you can imagine. And so join us, invite a friend as we go through this today. God bless. Have a great week.